Let's pray together. Lord, it's just overwhelming sometimes to think that you would give your life for us. And, and yet, as one of our Sunday school classes have been looking at, you, you gave us a seat at the table. We can sit at the table with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and next Sunday, we'll celebrate that meal and we'll be invited again to the table. And Lord, that you would die, that you would take upon you all the sins of the world, including ours. It's just more than we can fathom sometimes, Lord. And we thank you for your incredible love. And we thank you for all the ways that you show that you are indeed God. Today we're going to see your righteous indignation. But we're also going to see your great compassion for people. And so, Lord, we, we pray that we'll learn from that. And that we'll just continue to be amazed at how great and wonderful you are. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> We're looking at John uh, chapter 2. We're just going to look at verses uh, 13 to 17. I originally thought we'd, we'd look at more, and, and the more I got into this text, the more I found uh, there in the text. It just uh, became richer and richer in terms of uh, needing to share background and making sure we understand uh, what's going on here. So we're just going to read uh, verses 13 to 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Well, the very opening verses of John's gospel uh, reveal Jesus' identity. And throughout the gospel, and all the gospels really, we learn who Jesus is. But John in chapter 1, verse 1, states very succinctly, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As we said, John is very clear that Jesus is God in the flesh, that, that in Jesus, deity and humanity meet. And this gospel is going to challenge us throughout to ask the question personally, who is Jesus Christ to you? Who do you say Jesus is? And, and that's an extremely important question. In fact, it's the most important question. How we answer that question determines our eternal destiny. And that question throughout history has sparked debate. All three of the Gospels record some sort of conversation with Jesus and his disciples that go uh, like this, all three of the synoptic gospels. Who do people say that I am? Or, or who do people say that the Son of Man is? And though John doesn't record that particular conversation, he does record Peter's conclusion. Perhaps you remember that conversation. Some said Jesus was John the Baptist. 
Some said he was Elijah. Some said maybe he was one of the other prophets like Jeremiah. But then Jesus asked the direct question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter gave the only correct answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but Scripture over and over again reaffirms Peter's assessment of Christ's identity. Jesus is repeatedly referred to, and we have a list here, as, as God and our great God and Savior, the first and the last, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, that in Him the fullness of deity dwells. And on that slide I've given you, I've only given you just one reference for each of those titles, but there are many more. And there's also many more titles proving that Jesus is God, that point to His deity. Surely you're already seeing that in John's gospel, a reoccurring theme is Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. Of course, the skeptics repeatedly question the reliability of the New Testament and the honesty of John's disciples regarding the identity of Jesus. And this is not an apologetic sermon on the reliability of the New Testament, but let me briefly remind you of a few facts. The New Testament is the most well-attested document in all of antiquity. There are more early manuscripts of the New Testament than any other document in the ancient world. The New Testament authors are credible witnesses. Why? Well, what did they have to gain by lying, folks? Every one of them were arrested, beaten, imprisoned, exiled, martyred. The early church was persecution, persecuted. Do you think they would endure all of that for a lie? Further, the New Testament manuscripts were written so early that some of the hostile witnesses to Jesus and his life were still alive. Don't you think if they could have, for example, produce Jesus' body, they would have to dispel any, quote, lie about the resurrection? I mean, if they had been able to find the body, they would have presented it, and it would have stopped Christianity. It would have come to a screeching halt right then and there. But they could not. Further, since the hostile witnesses were still alive, they could have called out the disciples when they, when they lied. They would have been witnesses to all that Jesus did. They would have exposed the disciples, but they could not. They tried, but they could not. And that's enough for now, but the New Testament accounts are reliable. And John was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write his gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. In our text today, we once again have an eyewitness testimony that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the Son of God. He is divine. I think this story points toward His divinity. Let me read it one more time. <clears throat> The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, and here's one key to his deity. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered then that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, I probably need to say something at the outset about the placement of this incident in John's gospel. The synoptic gospels record Jesus cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry, shortly before his crucifixion. Of course, the critics love to jump all over this and to claim, well, John's got his gospel out of order. I wholeheartedly believe the critics are wrong. I believe Jesus cleansed the temple twice. One is recording in the gospel of John at the beginning of his ministry and another time at the, at, at the end of his ministry as recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are too many differences between these events and the way it's recorded in John versus the way it's recorded in the synoptics. Excuse me. One is what the critics say. It's the timing itself. The synoptics record an event during Passion Week, again at the end of Jesus' ministry. The cleansing in John's gospel is at the outset of his ministry. Another is the difference in the authority Jesus uses. Uh, In the synoptics, Jesus cleanses the temple, quoting a portion of Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer. As you saw in John's gospel, he never quotes Isaiah. His only authority, and he doesn't quote scripture. Instead, he speaks on his own authority. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Further, and we didn't get to it this morning, but verses 18 and 19 of John 2 tell us that at this first cleansing, the Jews asked for a sign, and Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is referring to his resurrection, and we'll see that more fully next week. But in the synoptics, the Jews do not ask for a sign, and Jesus does not make this claim during that temple event. He'll make it in other ways, but he doesn't make it during that temple event. There's some additional smaller differences between the synoptics and John. But I personally have looked at the evidence and concluded that the synoptics and John record two different temple cleansing events. And they serve as bookends, if you will, of Jesus' ministry. He cleansed it at the beginning of his ministry. And then because they didn't get it straightened out three years later, he cleansed it again. But don't take my word for it. Go to the Scriptures. Read the synoptic accounts and see what you think. I think we have them listed here maybe, but you'll find those in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. Read over those. I think those Gospels are talking about, again, one at the end of Jesus' life. Just want to be clear about that. I know that's probably more than you wanted, but you need to know these things. Critics come after these things in our lives. Okay, back to our text. Verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
The Passover, of course, commemorated Israel's deliverance from bondage in Egypt. Uh, Just an abbreviation, you perhaps remember that it was the night when the angel of death passed over the Israelites, but it struck down all the firstborn of the Egyptians. Passover was celebrated annually on the 14th day of Nisan, which is around March or April. And on that day, between 3 and 6 p.m., a Passover lamb was slaughtered and the meal was eaten. Jesus was raised in a devout Jewish home, so he went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and also the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would come shortly thereafter. John will write of Jesus celebrating three Passovers. You'll also find an account of Passovers in uh, John 6 and John 11. It's one of the ways that we get that Jesus had three years of public ministry. There were three Passovers during that ministry. But during Passover, Jerusalem would have been crowded with Jewish pilgrims coming to celebrate. They would have come from near and far. Passover also meant, therefore, big business for the Jerusalem merchants. It it would have been like Martinsville when NASCAR comes into town. Or it would have been like Galax when the Fiddle Festival is there. Or Stuart when we have all of our many festivals. Merchants would have naturally seized the opportunity. And those in the temple courts were no exception. Verse 14 says, In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. The merchants were likely set up in the court of the Gentiles. And so we already, there's an issue. They're in the only place the Gentiles could worship. And so we know they're disturbing worship there. But they're set up in the court of the Gentiles. And since it was required that every pilgrim make a sacrifice, and since it would have been impractical for them to have brought sacrifices with them from a great distance, these merchants set up to offer a service. The problem was that these merchants had a monopoly, and they were charging the pilgrims highly inflated prices. The money changers were also providing a service. Every Jewish male, 20 years old or older, had to annually pay the temple tax. But rabbinic law required that it be paid with a certain coinage of high silver content. So the money changers would exchange all these coins from near and far for the temple tax coin. It started out as a service. The problem was that they were charging exorbitant exchange rates. So what began as a service to help the worshipers became an opportunity for these folks to exploit the people. And Jesus was outraged. We read that in verse 15 as he looked over the temple grounds. What should have been a place of reverence had turned into a bazaar filled with exploitation. As John MacArthur writes, the sound of heartfelt praise and fervent prayers had been drowned out by the bawling of oxen, the bleeding of sheep, the cooing of doves, and the loud haggling of vendors and their customers. Jesus was outraged because the people were being exploited, and most importantly, God was not being 
revered in that place. So Jesus took swift action. He drove out all the merchants. He poured out the coins and the money changers, and he turned over their tables. (laughs) Jesus, in short, folks, created pandemonium. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, merchants would have been scrambling everywhere to, to catch their oxen and their sheep. The pilgrims would have been running out of the way to keep from being run over by those same animals. Pigeons might have been flying everywhere. Surely people were down on their hands and knees picking up the coins. Uh, The money changers were, and I suspect some of the pilgrims were as well. And the disciples, we don't know, but they may have been on the sidelines going, get them, Jesus. Get them. Remember, they were expecting a more militant Messiah. They, They may have been thinking, Jesus is demonstrating his power. Here we go. He's going to start a revolution. He's going to take over. We don't know. That's speculation. But can you imagine the scene? But folks, this was God's Son at work. And what He was doing here is another opportunity to reveal His deity. Jesus indicates His deity when He says to those selling the pigeons, verse 16, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. But I think he also reveals his deity by what he does. His actions, I believe, reveal the very heart of God. God is not pleased when people are exploited. And he is not pleased when he is not revered. When he is not worshipped. Micah 6, 11-13 says... And this is God speaking. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. And the message paraphrases, I love the paraphrase. Do you think I'll tolerate shady deals? And shifty scheming? I'm tired of the violent rich bullying their way with bluffs and lies. I'm fed up. Beginning now, you're finished. You'll pay for your sins down to your last sin. Folks, let me tell you something. If you're charging someone excessive amounts for products or for your services, or if you're lying or cheating people, I would urge you to stop. You're on dangerous ground. God does not tolerate the exploitation of people. Over and over again, you see Jesus having compassion on those who are being exploited. And he's got righteous indignation for all those exploiting the people. Jesus also made it clear that he does not tolerate irreverence in worship. He will not tolerate mockery of true worship. What is recorded here is the Messiah, the loyal Son of God, purging His Father's house of impure worship. 
And church, I got to share some tough words with you. If you come here on Sunday mornings and you're not serious, you're not focused, you're not reverent, you're not here with the sole purpose of, of worshiping and adoring God, well, it's a little bit rude to those of us who prepare. But it's an affront to God. It's an affront to God. Verse 17 tells us that the disciples remembered that it was written in Psalm 69.9, zeal for your, that is God's house, will consume me. Jesus was consumed with a great zeal and passion and reverence for God because, and for worship because he was consumed for that same zeal and passion for God, period. He had great reverence for God. So we need to come, beloved, with our hearts prepared, with our hearts focused. And I know we got a lot going on. I know there's things that's going to be happening later today. I get it. But we need to come with our hearts focused reverent, disciplined, ready to worship and adore the living God. There's enough in this short passage to keep us busy the rest of our days. Don't exploit people. Have compassion for them. Worship the Lord with all you have. So let's get busy, folks. Let's get busy. Let's pray together. Lord, over and over again in the Gospels, we just see Your great zeal for Your Father's reverence and worship. We see Your great zeal and compassion for people. And Lord, I pray that we will come to worship with great reverence. Whether, whether we're worshiping here or whether we're worshiping privately, that we'll just come with great awe as we enter into your presence. Lord, help us realize what a great privilege is ours that we're invited into worship. I mean, if you hung on the cross with, with me and everyone here on your mind, surely, surely we can come and keep our focus in worship. So Lord, help my wandering heart. I think of the hymn that says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Keep us focused, Lord. Keep us focused on you. We give our worship. We give our best. We exalt your holy name and we, we seek to give you glory and honor in all that we say and do. And Lord, please give us a greater compassion for your people. We see your great compassion. We see your righteous indignation when people are exploited. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the same love for people that you have. May we indeed, O oh God, love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love our neighbor 
as we love ourselves. This we pray through the name that is above all name, Jesus, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you today and forevermore. Amen.